Welcome to episode 6 of the And Why Not Summer of Action Specials 2022, the summer special episodes from the movie podcast from the nerds who haunted themselves. I'm Stuart Moraine, and each episode for this 10-part series, I'm joined by a guest to talk about an 80s or 90s action movie, carefully selected from the long list that guests had to pick from. So far we've covered 5 80s action movies, Lethal Weapon, Beverly Hills Cop, Cobra, Commando and Taffin, and now we're heading into the 90s with in no particular order... Last Action Hero, Out for Justice, and the Nick Cage Holy Trinity of Con Air, Face Off, and The Rock. In fact, we're kicking things off with the first film in the Nick Cage Holy Trinity, as I'm joined by Ross Beamish as we again head back to 1996, this time to discuss the Cage Connery action classic, The Rock. There are a couple of minor sound glitches in a couple of places early on in this podcast during the chat uh, with Ross. I think Sky was having one of those days, but apologies for that. Hopefully it doesn't affect listening enjoyment too much i hope you enjoyed the film talk and as always and if you feel like doing so you can keep the conversation going in the comments on our socials in the and why not facebook group or if you see this episode posted and now with an advance warning on spoilers and all that introduction stuff out of the way let's roll the trailer for the rock the following is a state secret gentlemen disclose it to any party and you will be subject to prosecution John Mason, British national, incarcerated on Alcatraz in 1962, escaped in 63. There's no identity in the United States or Great Britain. He does not exist. Secrets have a way of coming back to haunt you. There's a hostage situation on Alcatraz. Hostage, 81 tourist. The rocks are tourist attraction. The one you train to defend you becomes your greatest threat. A battery of VX gas rockets is presently deployed to deliver a highly lethal strike on the population of the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one you abandon becomes your only hope. You go talk to him. Me? Yeah. Hiya. I'm an agent with the uh, FBI. I'm Stanley Goodspeed. But of course you are. At least he got his name right. Now, all that stands between a city and a disaster. The power of this chemical is way beyond anything you can imagine. That's why you're coming with us. Is a man who's never seen combat. You're a chemical freak. <laughs> I'm a chemical super freak, actually. And another who's been out of action for 30 years. Show us on the blueprints. I can't. My blueprint was in my head. Fortunately, some things you never forget. But don't worry. It'll all come back to me. From Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers of Top Gun and Crimson Tide, and Michael Bay, the director of Bad Boys. Welcome to The Rock. We got visitors. Sean Connery. I'm sure you're ready for this. Do my best. Your best. Losers always whine about their best. Nicholas Cage. Listen, I'm just a biochemist. I drive a Volvo. Beige one. So what do you say? You cut me some friggin' slack. Ed Harris. Fire. Summer. 
ready to rock. Hello, Ross. How are you? Hey, Stu. Uh, I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm, I'm all right. Ticking over. Enjoying the uh, start of the summer. Oh, beautiful. Yes. <laughs> in which it's like sunny, and I think I'll do stuff in the garden, and the black clouds seem to... <laughs> So is that, uh, is that all we deserve? Do you suggest, or is that we should we expect some better? Well, I don't know. I mean, it is the Jubilee week when we're recording, so yeah. But it is also Britain. So. It is also Britain, but you know, I'm should sure. Temper our expectations, maybe, but one lives in hope, as <laughs> is maybe a theme for today's film, eh? Yes. Yeah. So I've, uh, we're heading back to '96 again after Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. specifically heading back to the summer of 96 again so yeah <laughs> i pigeonholed you into a very <laughs> slight slit in the entire history of film you're my well, summer I, of 96 guy <laughs> i love being that niche that's my <laughs> i've got that covered now great <laughs> awesome so yeah um i mean i always bury the lead but anybody who looks at the episode description will know that we're talking about the rock today um written by david weisberg douglas cook and mark rosner with apparently uncredited rewrites by tarantino aaron sorkin and jonathan helsley who i think did the bulk of the rewrites um directed by michael bay starring sean connery nicholas cage ed harris michael bean william forsyth john spencer and david morse uh, released in cinemas on the 7th of june 96 in the u.s and the 21st of june 96 over here uh, goes 335 million, uh, 62,624,000 dollars worldwide on an estimated budget of 75 million. And I couldn't find a Barry Norman review, but in an episode I found online where he was doing the countdown of the films of that, you know, leading into that week in the top 10, he described The Rock as the best of the blockbusters of the summer. And Roger Ebert gave the film three and a half stars out of four, saying, What really works is the chemistry between Connery. Ah, uh, as the reluctant warrior who has all the skills necessary to outsmart and outfight the uh, the occupying force and cage as the nerd uh, who can disarm the rockets but is not much in the killing uh sorry but is not much in the killing department and when there is an intriguing complexity added to the ed Harris character who is not one-dimensional as he seems that is so um, true, isn't it yeah i mean one of my big notes i've, I've always been of the opinion that Ed Harris is never bad in a film. <laughs> there are bad films with Ed Harris in, but Ed Harris is never bad in them. Um, but I've even got in quotation marks when I described the bad guys, because the opening sequence of this film is like a masterpiece in setting up the bad guys, which I have in quote, yeah. quotation marks, uh, motivation and code and the MacGuffin. It tells yeah. you everything you need to know. Yes, it does. It's it's very it's very efficient in that way. Um, but um, I was going to talk later about the pacing the film and maybe i'll save that to a bit later but um although you really get thrown into the context of what's going on it really takes a while to actually get to the the meat and potatoes of what we've come to the cinema for yeah but it's a really nice it's a really nice first hour to get there yeah Um, but maybe before um before going into those the specificity of that i was i just i mean I'd, I'd watched this film, I believe it was a classic blockbuster video rental, um, partly because being slightly younger than you, of course, um, in the summer of 96, this was um, off really 
it wasn't available to me because I think I was about 14 at that time. Time, time. Uh, I remember going to see or trying to go and see uh, something like uh, Speed. I'm pretty certain it was Speed, our our favourite cinema back at the Peel Centre. Around what year was Speed in? That was 95 Speed. 95, yeah. So I must have been about 13 then. Uh, I might have been 94. 94. Well, I was certainly too young to get in because yeah. went all the way there and I just went, hello, two tickets for speed, please. And they went, how old are you? And we went, 16. And they said, no, you're not, go away. <laughs> so um, I learnt my lesson then of, of not wasting uh, a long walk into the cinema and then a long walk back, not because of the situation you found yourself in of it being sold out, but simply yeah. because they wouldn't let me in. Um, so movies like The Rock um, and also... Uh, Face Off um, 97 and Con Air 97. Um, I I kind of waited until we could get the Saturday night movie rental from Blockbuster. And um, I watched it then and I rewatched it again last night just to remind myself of it. And I was just struck how I thought it was just so definitive of the mid 90s action of around about that 95, 96, 97 era. Um, Not sure if you, you agree there. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I didn't see it at the cinema because it was in that between period where I was just leaving sixth form and starting working. So I didn't have a lot of money to go to the cinema. Um, yeah. So I waited and bought it on video when it came out. Yeah. Because um, I remember seeing the bus stop ads. Yeah. I, I miss those big bus stop posters. Yeah. I don't really seem to see them anymore. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was on the big billboard as you drove along Bristol Road into town as well. Which you would have spent a lot of time looking at as you were walking back from Mission Impossible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just stopped and stared at that free. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, fuck it, I'll just look at this billboard. I'll <laughs> <laughs> do, at least it's free. But um, yeah, I bought it on video and I absolutely loved it. It's one of those movies that you can easily chuck it on or if you're flicking around on telly and you happen to see it on at any point, you can just watch it from there. That's, that's a really great observation. I completely agree there. Yeah, Especially as it's pretty much two films. Because, like you say, you've got the first half set up, which is nice. And then once they get on to Alcatraz, it it becomes like a diehard slash siege movie. But, I mean, there's a version of this film out there where where Ed Harris would be the lead. Is there? No, I'm saying, you know, you could write it from a point of view of Ed Harris as the lead. I see what you mean. Right. So, narratively, it's from different... Yeah. Um, And And, and the team breaking in would be the bad guys. If one for the fact he's got a couple of dicks on his crew... Yeah. yeah, clearly just there for the murdering. Yeah, and also that that classic um, kind of death by rocket that just yeah. seemed to be all pervasive in the mid to late nineties. Uh, you know, like with True Lies, with the uh, the Harrier jump jet fire. Yeah, and then we've got the you're the Rocket Man. <laughs> I, I've got that note. Candyman becomes Rocket Man. Yeah, but um, yeah, it is. It is. I, I mean, it's. With with regards to that's the interesting perspective you put there of how it could be told from um, Ed Harris's character's perspective. Uh, and in many ways, I think it is. And I think yeah. that's actually one of the, the great um, parts of excellence of this film. And I'm not one to normally call Michael Bay's work excellent, I must admit. But actually, I think this is probably his best film. Uh, that was um, going to be one of my questions for later, is is this the best Michael Bay film? And I 100% think it is. Yeah. Um, and one of the, the aspects of it is that it's not just a one-note film. 
it's well, I think one of the one of the great parts of it is that it's really opaque as to who actually the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Now, of course, all right, you've got the candy rocket man. He's a bad guy. Um, what's that? What's that great line? He says that. Um, I've got you, boy. Oh, that's, the, that's the other guy. Um, the one that Sean, Con- the sniper guy that Sean Connery tips off the edge when he's got a shot on the oh, cage yeah. at the end. I'd take right. pleasure in gutting you. Boy. I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. I love um, Nick Cage just, just repeating that line over and over again. We could just do that for 30 minutes, couldn't we? <laughs> just getting it more and more absurd, but we probably your listeners probably wouldn't like that. If, if but, you um, never cut a chicken when you're doing the roast and just be like, I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. Yeah. I, I'm a fishing boat. You caught a fish, pleasure in gutting you, and all the all your fellow fishermen around you going what? And you're like, yeah, The Rock, 1996. You ever seen it's it? That's why I wasn't allowed on the fish counter at Tesco's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just me on the the checkouts, just scanning them through. <laughs> just looking people out. cold dead in the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got your loyalty card? Because I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. Um, anyway, um, like I was saying, though, it's 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 really. It is complex. Like real world is complex, isn't it? And this is, although it's an action movie um, that deals with quite simple um, ideas of good guy versus bad guy. Ultimately, when you drill down into it, um, there are very good motivations for the supposedly bad guys, Ed Harris's character, to do what he's doing. And in fact, Sean Bean's character says that, doesn't he? He's like us. He's like us as a stand in. He says I I I completely understand what you're doing, but I cannot give the order and I yeah. cannot join you, you know. Um, and likewise, the the people like the FBI are not painted in a very good light at all, are they, within this film? But that's who Stanley Goodspeed's character derives from. So um, yeah, it's uh, John yeah. Spencer, isn't it? Yeah, and I was going to come back to to talk about him a bit later, personally. Um, well, he's just he's always a highlight for me seeing him. Yeah, well, yeah, because I'm always like, it's Leo from The West Wing. I know oh, and he's it, a bit of a shit. <laughs> and actually, I didn't realise you said about Aaron Sorkin, and of course that's a West Wing link as well. Yeah. Um, you know, with a, Leo was always given such great lines by Aaron Sorkin, and uh, if um, interesting combination of Tarantino, you were saying there with Aaron Sorkin, actually. That's, I get the feeling that any sort of movie coming out from the Disney house, most scripts seem to get passed through Tarantino at some point. Yeah. It was either him or Kevin Smith seemed to get a pass. Because I know Kevin Smith did rewrites on Coyote Ugly. Um, Tarantino did rewrites on Crimson Tide and this and a few others as well. But he can, Tarantino can, it's not, of course, he's renowned for writing dialogue, but he he can also construct a, an action scene quite well, can't yeah. he? Yeah. Really? It's like a one trick really, even if it was a hell of a trick writing that dialogue. That's it. I, I, and I mean, Nick, Nick Cage deserves credit as well for a, the uh he took out pretty much all the swearing for stanley yeah played him straight a yeah me, many came up with stuff like you know having the name of zeus's butthole yeah uh, and that actually what that do you is, say we cut the chit chat a hole yeah i mean that in itself is, is now quintessentially nick cage from this era isn't yeah. it? it just feels like that's part of his persona and i mentioned before about well of course we've got the rock in 96 and then face off and con air in 97 um i i when i was looking at those dates of release it occurred to me really this film occupied to me anyway um a post arnie and stallone era of uh, mid-90s action where those guys were pushing on a bit and they were getting a bit long in the tooth um 
but it was pre kind of like the early 2000s superhero era of say spider-man or whatever and i just find it so interesting that in all of those three films it released all within two years of each other that nick cage would spearhead that kind of like mini era yeah um considering where he came from with films like raising arizona and you know yeah i believe part of that was that people told him he couldn't be an action hero so that seemed to drive him on but um sort of mentioning schwarzenegger because there's conflicting reports as to which part he was down for but he was approached about this film there's a great i'll put a link to it in the show notes and um when this episode goes out but there's a great interview with james dyer that he did in empire that's quite a long feature piece where he talks about it and he says about um Don Simpson bursting into his trailer, totally stoned. He was like, he was just wiped out. Uh, he handed him like 85 pages with handwritten notes all over it. Um, trying to get him to, he was like, here, look at this, uh, but don't read it. Just to hear the premise. And Schwarzer huh. was like, he was like, look, I, I can't commit to this with what you're showing me here. He's like, you won't even let me read the script kind of thing. <laughs> he was like, why don't you bake it some more, develop it, and then we'll talk again. And um, he said that that upset Don Simpson. So he just went off and parked in Nicholas Cage. So I think as far as Schwarzenegger was concerned, he was up for the role of Stanley Goodspeed, yeah. which would make sense because I can't, he wouldn't be age appropriate for Mason. No. And actually, yeah, I was going to mention about um, the age of Connery in this one actually quite surprised me looking back. But um, this film was dedicated to Don Simpson, wasn't it? Yeah, because he died whilst this was being made. Yeah. Because again, apparently they didn't tell Michael Bay that it had happened. Really? They thought it'd be easier for him to just keep working, assuming Don Simpson was still alive. Apparently, Nick Cage let the cat at the back. Again, apparently, that's based on a couple of things I read online. But as, as with all things that I share on this, it's allegedly. unless it's in an interview specifically with a person connected to it, it's allegedly. Allegedly. I mean, in the case of Nick Cage, it was it was probably a literal letting the cat out the bag. Wasn't yeah. It? <laughs> crazy he was. He but probably um, did that gone in 60 seconds hand thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Get out of that bag. Um, I rewatched it last night for the first time in many years, although the film really does stick in your memory. And um, I was surprised that, that and in fact, I paused it, the, um, what turned out to be the halfway mark, which was when they first approached the island. Um, and it, it struck me at the, just watching the film that how much of the film had passed before they um, get to what is really the meat and potatoes of what the film is about, you know, literally yeah. getting to the rock. Um, but it didn't really it, it didn't impinge it in any way. In fact, it worked to its benefit. It really works. It really works that it's set up. And you mentioned earlier about the fact that it's really two films joined at the hip. Um, and whereas you couldn't get away with that today, as mentioned before, um, I, th I think that really works to its benefit, actually. Well, that's it, because, I mean, it's a good 40 minutes until you actually see Sean Connery on screen, and he's yeah. your top-billed actor. I know that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but usually they like to see him quite soon in the film and then make him disappear again for a bit. I mean, now you'd have a flashback scene of Connery getting captured or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which would have slowed it right the fuck down, but they'd have been like, no, people need to get what they're paying for. Um, I mean, this is very much, again, we've had a few recently, but this is very much a film that's got no small parts in it. Everybody yeah. seems to be cast perfectly. Yeah. And it Whether was. It's, it's, yeah. Sorry. I was just going to just jump on your coattails there and say it really struck me within the first 20 minutes of the film. I was like, and there's that guy from the 90s. And there's that guy from the 90s. And there's that guy from the 90s. Well, so, it was a massive surprise to me when I was like, there's John Laughlin from Footloose. Fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But it's like you got um, William Forsyth, who's great as um, Paxton, the FBI guy, who's like talking um, Stanley Goodspeed through it and all that sort of thing. I mean, Michael Bean is great. I've got issues with what happens to Michael Bean, but we'll come to that in a bit. It's like David Morse, um, pretty much all of um, the featured troops on Ed Harris's team. John C. McGinley's great in his small part. Um, Bookham, what's his surname? He's great. The conflicted thing on his face when they tell him to pull the gun on Ed Harris at the end. You're lucky that old man Hummel wants your life. You don't take pleasure in gutting you, boy. I'd take pleasure in gutting you, boy. I'll take pleasure in gutting you, boy. What's wrong with these people, huh, Mason? Don't you think there's a lot of uh, a lot of anger flowing around this island? Kind of a pubescent volatility, don't you think? A lot of angst, a lot of um, 16, I'm angry at my father syndrome. I mean, grow up! We're stuck on an island with a bunch of violence for pleasure-seeking psychopathic Marines. Shame on them! With regards to the the 90s aspect as well, uh, the mid 90s aspect, and I, I just picking up on some of the visuals as well. I noticed, um, well, the opening. You mentioned the opening is quite um, 90s in its own aesthetic way, um, but there were so many things like crash zooms and um, high high contrast colours um, were were so present in this film, um, and especially when you've got that car chase as well, where it's to, where it's really cr- close up in the grill of of Connery. Yeah, uh, he's got a few comedic moments in there as well, which I think re- work really well for him. I think he performs them brilliantly. Um, but that is definitely pre two thousands, really. Yeah, I mean it's very much Michael Bay perfecting what he did in Bad Boys, which I like Bad Boys, but it's not it's not as polished as this film is. Yeah. I think he took a lot from what, even down to the heist of the um, VX gas. Yeah. It's like perfecting the um, cocaine heist from bad boys and that sort of thing. I mean, say what you like about Michael Bay. He's the guy to get in for this type of movie. Nobody does action movies quite as well, particularly 90s action movies, quite as well as Michael Bay did. Well, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, it's not like I've rushed out to see Transformers films since the first one, but the because um, they just seems to be sleepwalking through them, really. Yeah. But um, this this is where he was really slick with the with the craft. You know, he as you said, he he fine tuned what worked before and he made it uh, work really well in this one. It, and the film still stands up. It really does stand up now. Yeah. No, I mean, it's. There's very little in it that dates it as well. A bit like Mission Impossible. There's very little in it that uh, actually, I mean, it'll always have that 90s nostalgia, mid 90s nostalgia for me because I lived through it. But I don't know, maybe if you're looking at it. But it's weird how you, like, in the 90s, looked at a film from the 70s, it looked like decades ago. Yeah. Now, more time than that has passed, and I look at a film from the 90s and I'm like, yeah, I could have been made yesterday. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, there's bits where Stanley Goodspeed pulls out a mobile phone and it's yeah. not a smartphone. But I'm like, thank Christ, it's not a smartphone, you know, for the reasons we've mentioned before. But um, I also thought, with with regards to links to the um, the other '90s culture and the zeitgeist of what was going on, um, I thought it was just interesting. Even even aliens got a little reference in there. Not not yeah. the movie Aliens, but the you know extraterrestrials um with the whole and what really happened at roswell and everything yeah 
I just thought that was so interesting because obviously this was the time when a massive show like the X-Files was really getting underway in terms of a global audience and and um, yeah, it went, was Independence Day out? Was that 96 as well? That was 96 as well, yeah. There we go. We got it's Everything's 96. <laughs> just get rid of every other year of film. We just talk about this one. Um, and it's just, I found it so interesting that it, it, it really did seem to put the, capture that genie in the bottle of, of that era um, and distill it out onto the silver screen. Yeah, I mean, the 90s seemed to be, and I mean, no disrespect, we talked about this when we talked about, not you and I, but the guest and I when we talked about Commando yeah it seemed to be the start of the action movie where the plot doesn't matter quite so much it's like the basic paper thin plot and it's just about the action set pieces kind of thing the 90s seemed to start to shift back a little bit to no no the plot does matter yeah um again I mean going back to Ed Harris you could have very easily done this film where he was like Tommy Lee Jones in Under Siege yeah and Adam is that sort of bad guy. The fact that they gave him a layer of complexity, and you see it in the briefing room as well, uh, near the beginning, where they're sussing out and they first speak to him about, you know, they still respect him as a general. Yeah, yeah. When the when yeah. the one guy tries to talk down to him about him, and the other guy's like, you know, no, not that shit. It was a bit like in um, Hunt for Red October, where the guy's slagging off Ryan. Yeah. Behind his back, and he's like, no, he earned those fucking stripes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's very much that, and just, I mean, you've got you've got the clueless White House guy, uh, chief of staff, and that. Oh, and man, yeah, I've got to mention about that. How old was he supposed to be? He said he was twenty-four or something. Yeah. <laughs> For Christ, the, and this is Naren Sorkin. I bet he's spinning in his not in his grave, <laughs> but you know what I mean. In his in his writing studio, twenty-four-year-old chief of staff, and this was in the scene with Leo McGarry in it. No, no. <laughs> he's he's going to break character and go, what? No, I'm going to take this over. It's not that way. God. <laughs> but, I mean, sort of going back to Nick Cage, they're doing a great job of setting him up as well. Down to mm. Chekhov's adrenaline shot and the fact he won't take it. So that's coming into play later on. Yeah. And actually, that scene um, that scene where they have the uh, the baby doll with the, the gas nerves yeah. coming out of it is actually quite an exciting little set piece. Um, but I can't I can't watch that without thinking of um, high fidelity. No, no. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's, it's Todd Luiso, so it's either high fidelity or he's the nanny in Jerry Maguire. Yeah. How the fuck did that guy get in that jar? Yeah. <laughs> I do like that he's a Beatlemaniac and after a stressful day, he goes home and listens to Peter and Gordon instead. Yeah. And I, wasn't that like another Nick Cage suggestion alongside the, the taking out the swearing is that he had to have yeah. the shtick about the, the being an LP freak. Yeah, I thought they would have gone with Elvis, but I suppose that was too close to uh, Nick Cage himself, so Beatles. But I'm guessing they weren't willing to pay for any Beatles music. So. Yeah. They were like, Peter and Gordon sounds a little bit Beatles-y to those who don't know any better. Mm-hmm. Talk, but, talking of um, links to um, like 90s culture and the zeitgeist, um, this is kind of like right up to the end of the 90s, really. Uh, we mentioned before, you and I, about allegedly how the VX was um, instrumental in actually, this film in many regards was instrumental in changing the direction of the Western world. In, in the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. So the, um, I can't remember. No evasions housed in glass in a lovely yeah, string of pearls. In an elegant but unstable configuration. 
so I'm not again. This is totally allegedly, isn't it? We don't. We've got no proof of this, but I can't remember where I heard this. But I've I'd seen or read somewhere that um, when uh, intelligence, British intelligence, got hold of whatever was the intelligence coming their way from the Middle East about Iraq um, and the supposed evidence for WMDs, they 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 saw the description of what the WMDs would be and they were like, hang on, I just saw this in a Michael Bay <laughs> film like last week. Um but they you know obviously history was history and didn't seem to matter. I know I know, you know, it led to a thing where it does smack a little bit of like, I really can't be asked this. I'm just gonna go and watch The Rock. I'm like, well that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. It's like when they used to take footage from or allegedly they took footage from video games and Use that as a well. No, the Russians did do that, didn't they? Was it the Russians recently used footage from one of the War uh, Call of Duty video games? Again, uh, that's. Uh, but I'm going to throw a big allegedly in that. Yeah, um, but I think that's probably not too dissimilar to. Yeah, I mean there was a not to stray too far off the topic of the Rock, but there was also that um, terrible deep fake of uh, President Zelensky's head, uh, yeah. like a. a, a 15 degree off angle and different lighting from about two months ago so um yeah anything anything's possible isn't it but in such a bleak world thank god we got the rock <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, the good guys won in the end they did um, um I, I love nick cage going in to speak to connery for the first time yeah i, I just yeah. love that nervous energy he's got and then the, <laughs> you know fake bravado yeah. that he just can't pull off and he gets when he offers when he says coffee. Yeah. Goes, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, no, I don't. I don't want a coffee, thanks. And he's like, no, no, offer me coffee. Yeah. Um, and, and it also leads to that amazing Sean Connery bit where he breaks the glass. He's Womack. Yeah. He's like Womack. I should have known, you piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. The um, no, we, we mentioned before about the chemistry between both of them, and um, Ebert, I believe you mentioned before, said about how that was that works so great, and it really did. It's they're not before seeing it on the screen they're not two people who would have naturally put in a film together and have worked so well um but they, they really did yeah because i mean i i really like connery and i like other actors connery's worked with but there's very few that he seems to have genuine chemistry with like costner and untouchables um harrison ford obviously Nanda jones and i'd say nick yeah. cage in this is genuine chemistry i mean people like mark Harmon, which i like mark Harmon for you know ncis and other stuff he did again west wing connection he was great as the uh guy assigned to guard cj in season three yeah um, yeah the, the role that got in the ncis gig but um yeah i don't him and connery by all accounts i read an old empire interview with connery where he was like you know i had zero chemistry with the guy yeah <laughs> and um, so, yeah again it's it, just... it tends to show if connery doesn't like somebody i think <laughs> yeah which is probably easier done than uh, we might think but yeah I remember, I remember at the time, because obviously I was a, like approaching my mid-teens, so time does feel a little bit more spread out uh, when you when you're that age, because that's the entirety of your life, really. Whereas now you look back and you go, that's only a, a blink of an eye. Um, but at the time, I remember thinking, unseeing the poster on Bristol Road of 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 uh connery there and thinking oh god surely he's too old for this even at the time i remember thinking and especially looking back at like um the last crusade which was 89 wasn't it 
and how he played an older fellow in that. And then I realised that, that looking back now, it's only seven years after the Last Crusade. Yeah, I think because he played older in Last Crusade. Yeah. Because I think he was, what, 50 in Last Crusade, was it? Yeah. Uh, I know he was 10 years older than Harrison Ford, pretty much, wasn't he? Or not much older yeah. than that. Um, but yeah, I think because he... Sean Connery's one of those actors, he hits at an age and then he just didn't change. Yeah. It's like he hit like that 50 period where he grew the beard and that and you're like yeah that's just how he is now <laughs> and he never seemed to change until like you know pictures came out of him after he retired where he did start to look old and frail as you know yeah. inevitably we all do but it was um, it was only another seven years to go after the rock until the league of extraordinary gentlemen that's it. and he just finished just, him yeah. or his acting career rather but really, there wasn't a huge difference between how he how he appeared in 89 all the way up to um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I think was about 2001, if I remember. Yeah, that's what I mean. He just seemed to hit a cap where he just didn't change. I suppose that happens more with male actors, potentially. It's like Roger Moore, once he hit a certain age, yeah. he didn't seem to age that much. And then, and then he did. <laughs> um well, yeah, Roger Moore seemed to do his age in between like Bond films. It was like it was like Moonlight, yeah. Creed, fine, and for your eyes only. It's like Jesus, what happened? <laughs> um, and then another actor actually who didn't seem to age and not really. I, whenever I see him on the screen, I love to see him. Um, but it's it's bittersweet because you know that he died um, way before he should have. Was uh, John Spencer? Yeah. Um, and I, I think you you probably love uh, the West Wing as much as I do. And he's yeah. such a fantastic character. He's so well written. He's he's such a brilliant actor in it. And actually, I quite like the fact he's a bit of a bastard in this one as well. That's it. He's one of those great actors that can be like uh, he's a bit like J.K. Simmons. Can play lovable really well, yeah. a la the West Wing, or you know a bastard that you want to see thrown off a building and dangled by his arm, even if it is clearly a stunt <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was yeah. There was no close up on his face then, was there? It's like high def. This is one of those films where high definition really didn't do the stunt doubles any favors. No. I mean, it's not face off bad. Where even at the time you were like, Jesus, that looks nothing like him. Yeah. It's like Nick Cage's stunt doubles pretty much got a ponytail in that film, but <laughs> but again, I mean, I also, if I was John Spencer, I'd be like, no, you're not throwing me off a building. Get a fucking stunt guy. <laughs> so. But I was thinking, sorry, I was I was just thinking about how um talking about um you know the, the advancements of technology and, and all of that. And I mentioned before about how the, the, it struck me the colour scheme was quite vibrant, whereas we had a big move in the two thousands towards more realist looking cinema. Yeah, everything got that blue tint, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Which I think, you know, as much as I love him is very much a Nolan influence. Yeah. I know it appeared before, I mean Mel Gibson's payback's got that blue noiry tint as well but yeah but when, yeah. when when you hit something like the dark knight that's when you really really get to even though it's um superhero fantasy film it really moves into that realist yeah uh, aesthetic um and even something like captain america civil war just really kind of doubles down on that as well but um i was i was surprised but in a good way because i think art comes in all shapes and forms and it's good to it's good to celebrate that is that this film is is in the criterion collection yes 
Yeah, I think it's one of the only two of Michael Bay's. I think Armageddon's in the Criterion Collection as well. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that one, actually. Yeah, then... no, it's, I mean, it's it's fun late 90s nonsense, but. <laughs> but, um... but I mean, this one belongs, I mean, I'm, I'm not a cinema snob in any way, shape or form. Um, it's very much, I, it can be dismissed as a switch your brain off and enjoy kind of movie. I think it's better than that. I think Armageddon's more of a switch your brain off and just enjoy it while it's on kind of film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a high bar of action movie and this one is very much high up in it. Yeah, because I, th- I think that you mentioned it before about um, how it's opaque who the good guys and who the bad guys are really. Um, it's it's it, it has action scenes. But actually, you know what? If you could... It would be the worst for it, but you could take out the action scenes and basically just have the film revolving around the dynamic of Ed Harris struggling with what is the right thing to do. Uh, the fact he's he's chosen poorly, um, you know, the fact that um, Nicolas Cage's character, Goodspeed, has got a, he's, he's going to be a reluctant father. And the fact that Connery, Connery's character is also reluctant in the sense that he's missed the growing up of his daughter um those things are what do an awful lot of heavy lifting in this film you know yeah yeah no definitely i mean again they could have been really heavy-handed with Mm. doing that stuff they lay it in really nicely i thought yeah Um, like say even the conflicted nature of some of the people on um ed harris's crew i mean you've got Tony Todd and the other guy who always plays the smarmy asshole in films. Yeah. Um, who are the blatantly seem to enjoy the killing element of it. Um, but then, like, say you've got the conf- conflicted nature of it. I mean, John C. McGinley in it is very conflicted. Yeah. Because, um, again, they could easily be just cannon fodder. Yeah, and it's it could be very easy to write lines dumb lines for these characters um so i was thinking of the scene when um good speed figures out where the daughter's gonna be when um you know they arrive at that it's like a park area in san francisco and it's where um sean connery's character has has found his daughter and they're having that heart-to-heart meeting for the first time and he doesn't just bust in and arrest him yeah you know, he, he goes in and he says, you know, he plays the role of, like, your dad's working with us kind of thing. And it could become very, very sentimental because Connery's character turns around and says, oh, thanks for that. You could have played that very differently. And it could get very smulchy and, oh, yeah, don't worry, we're brothers now, you know. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, it's very much a mutual respect between them. But it's not until the end that they sort of when Connery comes back for him. Yeah. Um. But like I say, even like Book and Woodbine, when, you know, the guy's like, are we really going to do this when they fire the missiles off? And then when Tony Todd tells him to pull his gun on Ed Harris before David Morse then pulls his gun as well. There's very much conflict in his face about doing it. He just realises that he's pretty much got himself in a situation where he's fucked. (laughs) What would you Um, say? What would you say is some of your favourite shots from this film? Because um, it's true that there's an awful lot more than just what it looks like, but there's an awful lot in this film that looks good. So what would you say are some of your favourite shots in this film? I mean, you've got the iconic um, 
after Nick Cage has crashed the yeah. is it Ferrari where yeah. you get the classic Nick um, Michael Bay low angle slow spin around hero it does, shot. It's never looked better. Um, just like Nick Cage firing off the flares, the amount of people who must have gone to Alcatraz after that and done that pose for photos. <laughs> yeah, I mean Michael Bay can frame an action shot like it's a piece of art. Yeah. I don't mean to blow smoke up Michael Bay's ass. My opinions on the man are himself, but and his later films, but certainly in this one, I mean, I would have given him any action movie job after this. You can see why he got the Transformers gig, and yeah, which bear in mind it was only his second film, and Connery had to go to bat for him a lot. Yeah, because I think yeah. the studio were trying to shit on him because they like to go for second time directors because they got enough experience to carry it, but not enough that they can't bully him into doing what they want kind of thing yeah um because there was a story again i don't know how true it is of michael baby according to a meeting and sean connery going in with him and being like no this guy's doing an amazing job it's great <laughs> wasn't was again allegedly but wasn't this to do with the fact that michael bay desperately wanted the the submarine you know the the single person submarine scene yes to get, yeah and he went look just give him it he's kind of he's making a great film he's doing a great job just give it to him but, and it's got that nice, warm, mid-90s action movie feel. They always feel hot and sweaty. Yeah. It's like yeah. Bad Boys, this, Con Air, even Face Off. Yeah. I mean, this film's set in October as well. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm sure it's just an English thing, but it's like, October, fuck, there should be snow everywhere. Yeah. It's like Nick no, Cage have to scrape that car before he nicks it. I, it's interesting you should say that, that hot and sweaty and sticky, like falling down style. You can't help but watch that film and feel hot. Yeah. Which it's is exactly the definitely point. a winter movie, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Especially now, nobody can afford to put the heating on. It's like just stick falling down on that'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was thinking, just like, just little. It's interesting. You should say that he's just he can shoot a an action film just to perfection, really. And I think you can't really take that away from him. Um, but just a few little seconds of shots. Like when the the fighter jets are flying underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Uh, it's just beautiful. And um, also just perfectly framed shots, like when they first get uh, Connery's character out and he's walking down the hallway and his long straggly hairs there. Even the uh, shot of Connery walking down the hallway in The Rock when he's going to go and meet with Ed Harris. Yeah. And he's just walking past all those cells. That's beautifully yeah. shot. Yeah. Do they bother to tell you who I am, why I'm doing this, or are they just using you like they do everybody else? All I know is you were big in Vietnam. I saw the highlights on television. And you wouldn't have any fucking idea what it means to lead some of the finest men on God's earth into battle and then see their memory betrayed by their own fucking government. I don't quite see how you cherish the memory of the dead by killing another million. And uh, this is not combat. It's an act of lunacy, General Sir. Personally, I think you're a fucking idiot. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Thomas Jefferson. Patriotism is the virtue of the vicious, according to Oscar Wilde. Well, thank you for making my point. Where are the guidance ships? Where are the guidance chips? I destroyed them. That was a bad move, soldier. Does that mean you'll execute a smoke? 
it's funny though it's like i was i was admiring those shots and then michael bay just does a michael bay not that it's a problem it's just his style isn't it and he, he throws a bit of levity in there like um i was watching this with my wife and she she had to laugh when uh the stylist as he likes to be called yeah said you know what was it he was carrying in the bottom of the the elevator or the lift. I, I didn't see anything i didn't see you throw that man off the balcony all i really care about is do you like your hair <laughs> do you like your hair um, it's, yeah. I mean, this this film hasn't got a great many female characters in it anyway. In fact, there's pretty much one of note. But um, it, it means that you avoid the usual Michael J. Tra- um, Michael, ba- Michael J. Michael Bay traps of, uh, let's face it, the fetishization of Megan Fox's ass, which came later in his films, where he liked to go low and from behind on women. Yeah. Which you know, as as a teenage boy, I'm sure is great. But as you get older, you're like, Ew, that's just. Yeah. And creepy you feel way more awkward so, when you're 40 I'm, years I'm, old i'm not comfortable i'm not comfortable yeah. it makes it very difficult to be like kids come sit and watch transformers like, oh no this is awkward yeah it's a bit like when i got the kids to watch batman forever because i was like that's probably the most child-friendly one aside from batman and robin and i can't sit through that yeah and i forgot just how sexualized nicole kidman is in the film yeah so i was like this is really awkward and uncomfortable <laughs> Yeah, well, there's even a sex scene in this one, really, isn't there? I know it's quite tame by by all comparisons, but um, at the near the start after yeah. she, after his yeah when he gets the call yeah um, I, I must admit I found that kind of slightly pointless because um, yeah it, it added nothing and um, I don't know, I found her character her continued involvement in it slightly redundant as well exactly it's, it's, mainly because she's played to be annoying. <laughs> Yeah. No is, disrespect to the actress, but it's just she's very much there to be like, why won't she just fucking do as he asks? <laughs> Which yeah. I know sounds like a real fucking man thing, but you know, it's like, look, no, woman, no, just do as your man says. That's what annoyed me is because that's the way she's she's set up. She, yeah. And she she um <laughs> it was slightly frustrating towards the end when obviously his unborn child is essentially in the direct line of this this VX nerve gas and she's barely she's barely present other than just a little worried face on the screen Um, you've got to think if your if your partner worked for like the secret service or the FBI or the CIA or something and they rang you up and like in a genuine serious voice were like look don't come yeah be like yeah all right no need to ask any questions I'm staying put (laughs) yeah and also like um when she's being escorted I'm sure they would actually have locked the doors (laughs) yeah whatever Again, it's like stay in the car. Fuck me. <laughs> since since we're there and it's going to get real nitpicky, um, there was a couple of things that struck me as just being like jarring annoyances in this film as well. Um, okay. Of course, any you know as great as a film is, this so I'm sure it's been said a million times on IMDb and whatever. I don't know. I didn't read it, but I, I noted that when they get to the the rock. And Michael Bean says, great, he's taking us to a room with no exits. And um, and it's admittedly a cool scene where Sean Connery's like, look, I remembered the, the timings of these fire blasts and everything. And he rolls underneath. And then he goes around the side. And they think they've double he's double crossed them. And he, of course, opens the door to let them in. Yeah. What I couldn't understand is that was the reverse of what he did when he escaped the first time. So why the fuck didn't he just unlock the door? <laughs> Why did he have to roll through the thing if he could just unlock the door from that side? You know, I was that's trying to explain a, this. Had a guard my, on it. 
Yeah, maybe, but you know, he's he's a trained SAS killer, trained by the best. The British. Well, it's, it's also there's possibly the argument there of why is the furnace still running? It's a tourist yeah, destination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all it's purely there for the cool shit. It's like my biggest bugbear with it, apart from the fact that those seals are not stealthy at all. They make so much fucking noise. <laughs> you don't need the motion sensors. My biggest thing is. Um, and I will admit, I'm not a military tactician in any way, shape or form. And hindsight's a wonderful thing. But surely Michael Bean would have told his men to stand down and allow himself to get captured. Surely being in a captured position where you can then regroup and potentially try to escape is better than being killed on the spot. Yeah. I know you don't want to make yourself another bargaining chip, but at the same time. Yeah. You can do more good captured and alive than. Yeah, and especially when you've got a character like Sean Connery's character was, where one minute he stood next to Stanley Goodspeed and the next minute he's 200 feet away looking at him through a beautiful yeah. frame shot. <laughs> but it's literally about three seconds time. He hasn't even broken a sweat. So you've got a bona fide superhero there. <laughs> um, that's, that's always been my bugbear. Is that I get that they all had to die to allow Mason to be able to escape at the end. But also... And, yeah. why- and it would have been a very short film if they'd lived. <laughs> this is, yeah, and, and right, look, this is after 40 minutes or 50 minutes of us praising this film, and now we're getting to the nitty gritty of like the things that annoy us, which seems a little bit uh, like we're shitting on it when really oh, that's you, not. You soon shit. forget it because the chemistry between Connor and Cage is what you came for, and you're just like, oh, yeah, I love Michael Bean, but you know, I'm used to seeing him killed off and stuff. Yeah, like, right. Let's, let's not forget how he got treated in the opening of Alien 3. <laughs> exactly. And he wasn't even in that and he's killed off. <laughs> so, like, and in my opinion, a great film. And maybe we'll talk about that another day. But um, I don't know. Oh, oh, yeah. the 96 remit. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, why, why, did, why did Stanley Goodspeed insist on taking those chips with him? Why didn't he just destroy him? Yeah, you would have thought it'd be easier to just destroy him on the spot. Like, what was I, he... I guess it was to give him the thing of connery taking away that conflict for him of yeah but, but hey look i'm we we've already said that this script was written by professionals and probably had rewrites by tarantino and aaron sorkin so who are we to question this we're nobody and again this is all shit you pick up on from multiple rewatches and the fact that it yeah. doesn't change your overall opinion of the film is no not at all and it's, it's it like is, any film i love i could te- also tear apart quite easily yeah it's like even the greatest films got issues <laughs> totally, totally and i we are i mean me particularly being nitpicky over it to be honest with you it was and, just and like i say you come for the small character stuff between connery and cage is the big center i mean like the guy with the twitchy leg where the dead guy's like, oh, yeah kill him again yeah again a great performance by cage there you know, and connery but... where he won't let go of the string of pearls he's like, yeah. give it back give it back give it back yeah. off <laughs> So and just when Connery's leaving him at the end before he comes back and breaks the guy's neck, he's just like walking <laughs> away and Cage is he's like, some sniper's going to get his ass. <laughs> and my funniest, I think the funniest part, in, yeah, the funniest part in the film is when he gives him the thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> what the, what's that supposed to be? <laughs> I don't know. One of my other favourites is uh, after they've done the little Temple of Doom minecart thing. Yeah. Where it goes off the end, he's like, Mason, are you okay? He's like, oh, yeah, she's perfectly, a fucking idiot. <laughs> Great impersonation, by the way. It was almost like you slid that in. I've, I've, I've been doing that for years. That was my one takeaway from the film. <laughs> well, you do that, and I'll do the. I'll take pleasure in gutting you, boy. 
I was wondering, um, out, out of those three Cage films from those two years, uh, 96 and 97, the, out of the, the Rock... The Nicolas Cage, Holy Trinity. Yeah, The Rock, Face Off and Con Air, which, in which order would you rate them? Uh, see, I love all three, but I think I would probably go The Rock. The Rock's easily the best one. Yeah. Um, I can switch between the two on Con Air and Face Off, depending on my mood. I would probably say Con Air, just because it's such stupid fucking fun. Yeah. I mean, Face Off is stupid fun as well, but a kid dies in Face Off, and that's... <laughs> Yeah. I, I said this when we talked about Face Off because my big bugbear in films it, it takes a lot for me to get past sometimes as a kid dying and given that Face Off opens with a kid pretty much getting his head blown off yeah that's, that's a hard, hard to it, was, it was a hard film to get into for a little while but I mean that's just Cage and Travolta having a blast in it. Um, but yeah I mean I could take all three of those quite happily like I say The Rock is my favourite easily and then the other two are interchangeable depending on mood Mm-hmm. It rapidly, as action films, dropped off for me then. I didn't like Gone in 60 Seconds. Yeah. Which I've only seen once, to be fair. It might be better than I remember it being, but I just remember being so disappointed by it at the cinema. But it also had that excess of early 2000s cinema. So. <laughs> like Swordfish in those kind of films as well, they kind of fall in that category, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's so early 2000s that they hurt. <laughs> yeah. It's like watching a, it's like watching Venom and being like, this film is like great for like 2003. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I did. I, one of the things I did enjoy about this film, aside from, you know, we talked about the the narrative and the multiple strands and the multiple perspectives and who was the good guy, who was the bad guy and all that. And then the visuals and Michael Bay's um, signature style and all that. Um, I just enjoyed watching it as just that little time capsule back to, to 96. And that's yeah. that's one of the reasons I love watching uh, Mission Impossible as well. Is I know we, we said that they don't date in terms of the quality of the film, but it re- really did remind me of. Um, and I don't want to use the, the nostalgia word, uh, but there you go. I just did it um, to throw back. But I I. I was hoping my daughter, who's um, 16, would have watched this with, with us last night because I wanted her 16-year-old eyes on it, as it yeah. were. Um, she she insisted that she was too tired and went to bed instead. But uh, maybe I'll get her to watch it with me another time. Um, but I really, it just felt, it just felt really true to that era. In well, a so good you way. don't really get action movies like this anymore. If you think about your big summer blockbusters, they're either your, you get your Bonds, which is more Christmassy, I know, um, your Mission Impossibles, and then it's the Marvel DC movies generally. You don't really get the big budget action movies anymore. I think Taken was probably the last really big cinema release action movie, and that was quite a small scale release. Yeah. And what about it, it just the, built a momentum, didn't it? It's, not that I've seen it yet, but the Maverick. Yeah, I, Tom Cruise is almost a franchise of his own at this point. <laughs> I think post Fallout, it's because Fallout was such a huge movie for him. And then obviously we've had COVID since, so he's not really had much else action movie wise. But I, I've still not seen Maverick. I'm going to see it tomorrow. Oh, good. I, I, we're, we're going as a family because even the boys were like, yeah, I'll watch that. Yeah. It's like, yes. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think that film will be actually quite a. Uh quite a cultural event actually that'll be a little marker for 2022 
Um, oh, I, I think so. Yeah, I think it's well, it's already performed massively well in its opening weekend, doesn't it? It's one of the highest grossing opening weekends. But one thing I would ask you to to think about, and um, maybe we can talk about it once we've both seen it, is does it have the pacing of a film from, say, the 2010s onwards? Or does it have the pacing of a film like the one we, we've just talked about today? Okay. Yeah. It takes its time um, to establish the characters, to establish relationships of, with the spectator to the characters, to, to have not highbrow strands of narrative going on, but but multiple strands of narrative going on and ones that are relatable. Um, I can understand honour, even if I'm not in the military, I can understand why this person feels honour bound to his fallen comrades. I can understand a, 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 someone who's just discovered they're going to be a father after facing a pretty horrible death scenario. Um, or does it just jump in so that within the first five minutes there's a major action set piece and it doesn't let up for an hour and a half yeah um and actually you know like that's to me that's one of the great successes of this film is that it it doesn't need to rush to get you there for the big fight for people to die um it takes its time to let us get to see these characters and these actors are great actors you know these the connery and cage they're great and it's nice to be able to give them the luxury to actually see them perform on the screen. Yeah, and to give them characters. <laughs> yeah. Because I guess another problem with certain action movies is like, oh, I enjoy like, uh, for want of a better term, straight to video action movies sometimes. Just or some of the recent Liam Neeson ones that have gone straight to Sky Cinema, mm-hmm. I've watched and enjoyed them. They're absolute crap. They've yeah. got like no character beyond <laughs> your standard beats of you know. He's got a daughter or a granddaughter or a dead wife or whatever. <laughs> it's like, yes, it's all shit I've seen before, but it's like I'm not really invested in his character. I'm just enjoying it for the mindless fun that it is while I do something else kind of thing. Um, but yeah, this one, I'm inve- you like I say, you're invested in all the characters. You're invested in Ed Harris as well. You want the fucker to get away with it to a certain degree. Yeah. And he's, he's not wrong in what he wants. And he's honourable at the end where he goes, look, we they called our bluff. We bluffed. We they called our bluff. Now we stand down. We lost. That's it. So yeah, I kind of feel he should have let the team know in advance. That was probably one dick move on his part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe he was a bit confident in his uh, own abilities there, but to, to be kind of like, look, look, there's a slim chance that they may call our bluff on it, and I'm not willing to like nuke, you know, fire a nasty nerve agent and kill millions of people. Yeah. I do like that bit in the briefing where he's like, you know, what would be the fallout? It's like 60, 70, and the White House goes like, that's not too bad. It's like a thousand. But they're quite happy to do it to the fish, aren't they? They're like, just chuck it in the ocean, it's fine. I'm guessing it doesn't explode. I'm guessing it just dumps. But I really hope somebody uh, goes and retrieves that at some point, because otherwise you've got a sequel where some dumbass fucking salvage guy finds it. So you mentioned um, before about a potential sequel. So what's the deal with that? Uh, yeah, Michael Bay said he had an idea for a sequel that would have been because right, quickly, if we do the ending for this, because um, I question whether the film actually has a, whether Mason puts Nick Cage's character in a good place by telling him where the microfilm is. Yeah, because, you know, it can go three ways. Either he'll become the target and be hunted down and, you know, suicided, as Connery said, yeah. <laughs> once they've got it, because I'll assume he's looked at it. Um he can either use the knowledge as leverage for a better life. And, you know, with that, then make Mason a free character and free man. But apparently Bay's idea for the sequel was that it would have 
had the government chasing Cage because of the microfilm. Mm-hmm. And it would have led to him teaming up with Connery to try and stay alive and get away, which just starts to sound a little bit like, um, ah, uh, what's that Kim Bassinger, Alec Baldwin one that was a remake of the Steve McQueen film. It just sounds like an old couple on the run. Kind of. Yeah. That shit midnight run is what it sounds like. With, with the rock, you have a defined mission and you have real stakes for everybody everybody has something to lose there's real jeopardy there right even the bad even the worst bad character in it has proper jeopardy there um even if it's as simple as they didn't get their money and they're probably going to get killed yeah i think it wasn't for the fact that tony todd and that other smarmy guy who gets the vx smacked in his mouth yeah and you know if ever a character deserved it it was him yeah Um, aside from the fact that they're the two that are like you know let's waste these fuckers when michael bean's in the shower room yeah um, and, you know, I, I kind of feel that team had it coming because, like I say, they weren't stealthy at all. They're like, there's a thing there, but I'm just going to knock it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, let's I don't know what it is, so let's just I hit it. I think it's a motion sensor. Let's just tap it to find out. <laughs> but alleged, apparently, um, a lot of the Navy SEAL team, apart from the ones that had, were featured actors, were actual Navy SEALs. They? I kind of feel like they must have been like, you know, we'd never do this bullshit in real life. <laughs> yeah. Although we are being deployed to Iraq, apparently, to do it yeah. in real life. So uh, there we go. Swings and roundabouts, maybe. But um, with with the idea of a sequel, personally, I think this is definitely one of those that should be and is uh, one and done. It, yeah, I mean, it's it, any sequel would suffer from diehard sequel syndrome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Which you can enjoy the sequels, but at the same time, you're like, this has just gotten fucking ridiculous now. Yeah. And it, it's amazing that Die Hard with a Vengeance is as good as it is. Yes. Given what's come before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a shame they didn't make any more Die Hards after Die Hard with a Vengeance, but it was the right call, I feel. I feel yeah. a Die Hard 4 and 5 would have been awful. Well, yeah, that, in that weird parallel universe where they did, I feel sorry for those guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I like I like the uh, the ending of it. Again, it's kind of like that '90s um, zeitgeist callback to things like JFK and yeah. uh, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like a a nink a, a, a nink. That's a wink and a nod, by the way. A nink um, <laughs> at, at the the aware audience of the other stuff that was going on in in you know we talked about you know the independence day x-files an interest in the the paranormal an interest in and conspiracy theories a, a time when if you said oh i'm interested in conspiracy theories that was just because it was just interesting stuff for story not because you were a crazy loon because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you card cube into your forehead or anything <laughs> yeah. um but uh yeah so I, I i quite like the fact it was uh although i don't know why i don't know why they had to vandalize the church in such an, o- an overt way couldn't they have just quietly gone in and done it why did they have to do it presumably it was in the middle of a service or something and don't get me wrong i'm not religious or anything but i still have respect for people that have religion i mean i wouldn't exactly and also they've just been married so does it imply that they got married in there and they've just gone, yeah, one last thing. We're gonna. I, I don't think so. I think they did it on the way through. I'm not sure. I do like the idea that it was their wedding. Like, <laughs> gone out to the car. And he's like, I'm just going to go back in now and do it. Like, I just <laughs> wanted to say thanks for the thing. And we'll leg it. Yeah. <laughs> Knocked him over the head with it. As well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, 
it's, it's, it's lucky that church didn't have any kind of renovation done to it. Imagine if you can smack that thing away from the pew and it was like nothing in it. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we set fire to those uh, pews for firewood. Just, you know, like, <laughs> Be like that woman whose kids threw a mattress out and she'd been storing all her money in it. <laughs> so what we go also, so just explain to me something. I must be a bit dim here. What was what was the benefit of Sean Connery's character hiding that microfilm? Like why? Well, he, he says because if they got it back, they'd just suicide him. Oh right, they just kill him. So, yeah. but as long as he was alive, there was some bargaining for him to be able to say, "Well, I know where it is." Yeah, as long as they didn't have it, they had to keep him alive. Right. I, I guess on the off chance that he deathbed confession or yeah on, on the off chance but they also said that they were a different fbi to the jager hoover days didn't they because they said well why didn't we just go after his daughter and get him that way and they went oh we're different now yeah not that different though were you still kept him locked up i love that they didn't put his name on his prison transfer thing but they did put a next to kin <laughs> yeah it's just does all those things but like i say it's just there's so much in this film to love. I, I 100% agree. It should never have a sequel or a remake. In this age where there's always the temptation to legacy sequels now. Oh. This is just... Because I've always said there's no shame in being like, yeah, one and done. Yeah, I mean, like we said, we just had three very different films that were enjoyable in their own way. Uh, the Rock, Face Off and Con Air in sh- quick succession, really. You called them the, the Cage Trilogy and they feel like that. And then so it's, well, it's, it's Nick Cage called fans call it the Holy Trinity. Right. And um, that's that's fine. I mean, the only thing you could potentially do and in this example I'm about to use will show why, again, they shouldn't do it was another Nick Cage, Sean Connery film. A la A Fish Called Wonder, where they reunited that cast of Fierce Creatures, although that didn't work in that case. But that's pretty much the only way you could do it if you wanted to recapture that magic was to find a way to pair those two up again. Yeah. But the film, the film ends optimistically doesn't it yeah again it's one of those endings that it's a bit like ferris bueller's day off where you're like you know cameron probably gets a beating from his dad when he gets home after trashing his car <laughs> we'll ignore that bit it's, it's one of those happy endings where you're like yeah you got the microfilm it's like shit he got the microfilm <laughs> it's, it becomes enemy of the state doesn't it oh yeah yeah which now i'm wondering whether enemy of the state started as a script for the sequel to the rock <laughs> you know so in the, the next five or so years someone will deep fake um nicholas cage Ni- nicholas cage's face into that film and probably having dub over it just to rewrite history of will smith's body yeah <laughs> that's Connor, not problematic on Gene Hackman. <laughs> <laughs> which apparently tony scott was originally offered the directing job on this as he went on and did enemy of the state as well but what on the rock on the rock apparently because oh, right. i he'd worked with Simpson and Brockheimer a couple of times on Beverly Hills Cop 2 and obviously Top Gun. Yeah. And I got feeling he did another one for me. And now he definitely then did Deja Vu and the ironically titled Deja Vu, the film everybody forgets. Yeah. And, uh, and also feels like they've seen before. And um, Enemy of the State. Um, it would have been a very different film, I think. Nothing against Tony Scott. I really like Tony Scott films. I think he's a great director as well, but... This this film fell on the right side of Michael Bay, didn't it? Yeah, what, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think once you hit that Armageddon, Pearl Harbor period for Michael Bay, 
which in many ways after Pearl Harbor, it's amazing he got things like Transformers. Mm. But I mean, it just shows how skilled he is as an action director. Yeah. And going back to that that um, Criterion collection, my understanding was I, I knew this before that his I believe his film tutor at uh, his film school said that he was the most gifted film student she'd ever taught. And by all accounts, um, she is on the board for the Criterion Collection, which allegedly is a reason to consider why he might have both of those films in there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she seems to see something really special in him. And she obviously taught him and worked with him. So um, it'd be really interesting, actually, to see his really early student work, actually, to see the, the raw, the raw stuff that was coming out of his of his cameras, should we say, or his directing skills. From yeah, time. I know he did a lot of music videos, didn't he, before Bad Boys as well, as I heard most 90s directors did. I mean, even yeah. David Fincher was yeah. music videos prior to Alien 3. Yeah. Just seemed to be the jump forward thing. Now it's you direct some episodes of TV and then you jump into film kind of thing. Yeah. Although with how high quality TV is now, sometimes it goes the other way. So yeah, Plus, go to a film and then we'll give you an episode of this. That's the thing. And actually, you know what? If this, you know, you've just made me kind of have my eyes opened a bit with what you said there. In that, if the if this film was to be made now, I bet you that there would be a spin-off TV series on something like Disney Plus. Yeah. Is yeah, it, like following the FBI guys or the origin yeah. stories of Michael Bean's SEAL team or. Yeah, or like the 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 real stories on the microfilm or you know whatever. So. Good speed the college is. This is General Hummel. Drop your weapons. Drop them. Anderson here, General Hummel. Commander. Team leader. Commander Anderson, if you have any concern for the lives of your men, you will order them to safety their weapons and place them on the deck. This is not happening. Sir, we know why you're out here. God knows I agree with you. But like you, I swore to defend this country against all enemies, foreign, sir, and domestic. General, we've spilled the same blood in the same mud. You know goddamn well I can't give that order. We're dead. Your unit is covered from an elevated position, Commander. I'm not going to ask again. Don't do anything stupid. No one has to die here. Man, following the general, you're under oath as United States Marines. Have you forgotten that? We all have shipmates we remember. Some of them were shit on and pissed on by the Pentagon. But that doesn't give you the right to mutiny. You call it what you want. You're down there, we're up here. You walk into the wrong goddamn room, Commander. Goddamn it, Commander, one last time. You tell your men to safety their weapons, drop them on the deck. I cannot give that order. I am not going to repeat that order. I will not give that order. What the hell is wrong with you, man? Stand fast. Oh, my God. Let's waste these fuckers. One other quick note as well I meant to mention was Hans Zimmer's score is superb. Obviously, now we all think of Hans Zimmer with the, you know, boom. Yeah. He became synonymous with post-Dark Knight. But his score in this is perfect action movie score. Yeah. And it works really well in isolation as well. Some, I mean, as you know, being a fan of movie scores as well, some you buy on CD and you're like, 
this is nowhere near as good as it was in the film. Mm-hmm. But it, it's one of those ones that and like the Crimson Tide one, a peak nineties. I suppose Crimson Tide more a thriller than an action movie, but they're peak. When he gets Gary those, yeah, he gets those military notes right, doesn't he? Like when you mentioned with the opening scene, and the the score really elevates that opening scene as well, with the the rain coming down as they're doing the the twenty one gun salute, and the music elevating that scene to really really um, frame Ed Harris's character's motivation. Yeah, yeah, it's just. I mean, to be fair to Michael Bay, he had a great score on Bad Boys as well. The Bad Boys theme is ace. Um, yeah. Again, proper 90s action movie theme. And it seems to carry over. It's not the same theme, but it's sort of a new version of that sort of feel of theme. So it's not the same music at all, but it's just got that feel of it. It's do, just, you, do you think then that we mentioned all these things that really kind of put this squarely into the 96 camp do you think that these films are just they can't be made again something like the french connection can't really be made again something like the godfather can't be really made again in this era do no you th- i don't think they can do I you think, think i think it's evident from certain films that have had sequels even like the bad boy sequels do not recapture the magic of that first film even if the sequels are in some cases, in some people's opinions, better than the original film, which I don't think Bad Boys is an amazing film. Yeah. But I think it's very good for what it was at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite an important film in the history of action movies as well. It's one of the films we were going to cover, but unfortunately, the guy who was going to do it had to drop out, unfortunately. Um, so we swapped it out for another film. But um, yeah, I think Bad Boys is a very important one because, again, it sort of reignited the buddy cop thing after Lethal Weapon for a bit. Yeah. And put a new spin on it. It was one of the first action movies that had two African American leads. So what sort of in the mainstream kind of thing? What can a film like The Rock teach modern filmmakers and or modern audiences um, that would still work in say the 2020s? So you know, like a there's certain narratives that just don't don't really work well outside of the 90s because of inventions like smartphones and stuff like that. But what, well, what I think is that I think a post 9/11 world as well changed a lot of. I know we sort of soon slipped back into that yeah. sort of pre 9/11 world to a certain degree with certain worldviews, kind of for want of a better term, certain politics. Yeah. Um, I think people are so much more aware of politics now as well than they potentially were then mm. i think now certain people would look at it i mean this film doesn't swing democrat or republican there's no point watching it am i like this is fucking republican that's a very astute observation actually yeah but this, i think yeah. i think the political side of the world now makes it a bit more difficult to make just like you look at something like red dawn in hindsight of the reagan republican era kind of thing and you look at it it's like it's very a republican movie isn't it it's like, i really enjoy it but yeah this, this very much feels like it was made in you know and it's a bit like watching 24 now as well so you know yeah, there's nothing liberal about this program at all no it um, is yeah that's that is a really interesting observation you've made there and actually that's quite a subtle subtle thing about it is that this isn't political this doesn't have a political angle on it no, yeah, like, I mean, the politics of it is that, you know, soldiers are getting fucked over and that's been true of every government. Well, that's a moral and ethical angle. Isn't yeah, exactly. It? It's not about, this is where you've got to, this is, it's not tribal, this film. 
that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. And actually, I, I said, what could this film teach modern filmmakers and modern audiences? And maybe this is a good way to remove politics from a film and still have it really entertaining. Yeah, I yeah, it's got a like you say, the moral centre of it is like I say the fact that you don't really know to root for. I know people make that argument about things like Joker and that, but you know, the, you know, all you don't know you're supposed to root for is like, but you do know you're supposed to root for, and you're not supposed to root for the Joker. If you root for the Joker, then you're a fucking monster. Whereas you don't get that with this film. I yeah. don't think anybody would be like, well, if you're rooting for Ed Harris, you're a monster. It's like, well, no, because we know Ed Harris isn't going to do it. Yeah. If Ed. If they wanted to establish that Ed Harris was a guy who would fire a missile on innocent people, they wouldn't have been using trank darts at the beginning. Right, exactly. That's what I mean about that scene setting up his code straight away. Yeah. And like and, I say, it only sort of goes very killy when he brings in Tony Todd and the other guy. Yeah. And their men. Which I know, you know, I, never bring in a team you've never worked with before. I really do like that scene where he's introducing the team to each other. Yeah. It's like this guy, he was with me in the Tet Offensive. These guys, they cut their teeth in Desert Storm. You guys are new, but your reputation precedes you. You're obviously going to kill us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think modern, because like I said, I, I really love the pacing of this film and the fact that it, it gives us all the things I've said before, you know, it gives us time to get used to the characters and, and then f- start to align with them. There's in 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 the spectatorship theory, um, you know, this is the film studies teacher thing coming out again. Um, there's a there's three levels. Um, so firstly, you have recognition, where you recognise these characters and what they do and what they should do, and then you have alignment, where you start to fall in line with your understanding of what their actions are, and you can kind of position yourself alongside them. And that's probably where you start to develop an idea of who the protagonist is and who the antagonist is. And then you have allegiance. And that's where basically whatever they do, it doesn't really matter. You, you're fully you're fully in their camp. Um, and this this film, for all the reasons we've said, really does an interesting job of balancing your um, I mean, straight away, we recognize who's who are the people we should be following. But the uh, alignment. I think it does a really nice job of balancing your alignment with all of those characters on all the sides. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I suppose at the end, you've got allegiance towards, interestingly, two characters, our protagonists, Connery and Cage. Um, but there is a certain, there is a, there is an understanding. And I think for me, a sadness when Ed Harris's character dies, um, yeah. but necessary that he does die. Um, but yeah. Well, crumb. yeah, he, he couldn't have lived after that. It's he'd have to have the same sort of treatment that Mason has if he gets to like disappear into the wind kind of thing. Yeah. And, and then that lessens the impact on Connery's character's sort of escape. But in, in this day and age, that would open the open the doors for a sequel, wouldn't it? So yeah, they probably you'd would have, have Ed Harris and Sean Connery on the run together. Yeah. An oddball comedy. <laughs> yeah. Film and Louising it off a cliff, but actually not dying, just like doing a Wiley Coyote flip or something. And yeah, it'd be fine. And then it would be another sequel. No, it was a bond, so he'd just have a parachute open up. <laughs> yeah, just the Union Jack as Ed Harris's character falls into the pit. There's one line in this that I flagged up when I wrote it down that's always really stuck out for me, and it's when the last fight Connor is having with the guy, where he says, "English prick, I t- ever tell you my old man was Irish." Yeah. It's like, what the fuck is that? 
Yeah, and of course, like he's already said that he was from Glasgow. It says earlier in the film he was from Glasgow. It's just so I'm like, why Connery? Is, why is, did you let that... that go? Why did you not correct him? You should have, you know, sorted him out and gone. I'm not English. <laughs> I don't know if it was like, I don't, yeah, I really don't know what it was there for, whether it was like, you know, a sly dig at the ignorance of Americans and not knowing the difference between England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. or Yeah, and also it's implied that they know each other from before. I know. <laughs> no, you didn't, because I've only just met you. The first time I met <laughs> and you. And you're kind of beating the shit out of me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, you, I've got other things to think about right now, rather than nationalism, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, it, like I say, it's just one of those things that really stuck out there. Of like, was that meant to mean something more than it did? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's where that's where you have probably too many writers spoiling the broth there. Yeah, checking in these weird ones. That's when they got through the final draft, I think. Again, it's such a minor thing. I mean, by that point, we're all rooted in Nick Cage's journey to stab himself in the heart with a needle. <laughs> yeah, so it's like I like to think that's his true character journey. It's like he found the strength to stab himself in the heart with adrenaline. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And I hope he was out of spray it range from that guy who, <laughs> yeah, that shot where he's like choking on it and it's going everywhere. Again, that's a beautifully shot though. Yeah. The way that's framed and just the way it sprays out of his mouth and how he shot that, it's horrific. But if they in some same... ways, that's weirdly more horrific than when you see the guy melted in the when they shut him in at the beginning during the heist. Yeah, which is pretty grim. But, um, it's definitely, definitely. Sh- if they were going to have those stupid lines of dialogue, like "Didn't I tell you my dad was an Irishman?" They should have definitely had had Nick Cage go say it, don't spray it. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that would have been in the Schwarzenegger version. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but apparently this version Schwarzenegger saw was very different to what the final film was as well. Or he didn't even see the script, but as it was pitched to him then. So I, I dread to think. There's no way Schwarzenegger could have rolled underneath that fire thing. It, it wouldn't have been this film if it was a Schwarzenegger one. It would have been more like Escape Plan, which is another film that I perfectly enjoy for what it is. But it's it's a nonsense movie. It was just fun to see Schwarzenegger and Stallone together kind of properly in a film. Um, sort of quickly then, because we can't really ignore it. There's long been a theory that this is an unofficial sequel to the Connery Bond films. Yeah. Um. I think it's all horseshit, but I just wanted to get your opinion. <laughs> I just like I like the fact we said it a one and done standalone. Yeah. I, I, OK, it's got you could call it a spiritual successor or whatever like that. I quite like that idea. But I think that actually what you've just said there is almost indicative of 2000, 2010 audiences looking for more in there than there really is. Yeah. Um, I guess I wonder if that that started following the say a film like The Matrix that really gets you to maybe deep go deeper several layers deeper than maybe you need to but um yeah i like i like the fact that yes he's a character he's in the he was in the sas um he's very skilled he's obviously you know um and it does feel romantic to think that this is a maybe a, 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 a as you say, an unofficial sequel to it. But actually, I just like the fact is he's just playing a similar character. Yeah. I, like, I mean, I'm, in many ways, it is an ideal post-Bond movie for a Bond actor, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit like Pierce Brosnan had um, The Matador and Taylor of Panama, kind of as is post-Bond, or he was still Bond at the time once. Oh, no, it might have been post-Bond Taylor as well. No, it would have been before his last Bond film. But anyway, um, yeah, he sort of did his 
takes on alternate bonds in various other movies. And this sort of feels a little bit like Connery doing that. But at no point did I ever watch him be like, he could be an older Bond. Yeah. It's like, like you say, it's it smacks of people just trying to think, find things that aren't there. It slightly irritates me when that happens. It's almost like it's in a in a passing conversation, like you know, down the pub or something. You go, oh yeah, wouldn't? What if he was James it Bond? It is, isn't it? It's one of those pub conversations where you're like, oh, imagine if it was he was actually James Bond though. But like, this would be cool. This would be cool. This would be cool. And sort of piecing it together in your head, kind of thing. But then at the end, you'd be like, nah, that's bullshit. I, th- I just think it, it demeans the the character that's been created for the film. It's like the idea that because the president in this is the same president as in Armageddon, that they're in a shared universe. Yeah, yeah. It's... Which, or maybe he just likes that actor. Yeah. <laughs> Thought he was a good president and did a decent, if not slightly hammy, speech. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a place, there is a place for that kind of thing, you know, like they've got the classic one about the Pixar films all taking place in a shared universe, which is interesting for discussion, although completely unnecessary. And likewise with Tarantino universe, you know, they say, um, I think it's in Glorious Bastards is where the they suggest the the alternative history begins in the Tarantino universe, isn't it? Yeah. Again, complete. It doesn't change Pulp Fiction. It doesn't change Reservoir Dogs. Um, and and it just. I just think it's as I said. I think it's slightly demeaning to Sean Connery's character in this one. To yeah, to I s- think the Armageddon thing's a fun thing to play around with. Be like, oh, it's the same president, so it must be the same universe. Yeah. Be like, you know, they finally have that problem on the rock get solved, and then yeah, big rocks come from outer space to have them. <laughs> but at no point ever watching Armageddon was I like, I wonder if this is set in the same universe as The Rock. Should get Death Stanley Goodspeed up there. Yeah. Perhaps that could have been the sequel. Yeah, and so we you, have... you get six films in before you send them off to space. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, nope, we're doing it in the sequel. Goodspeed and Mason in space. <laughs> yeah, it's set on like the ISS or something. He was the only. He was the only. Character, that's where he's hiding out. He's the only one to have ever escaped from the literal orbit. <laughs> well, Mac Torp, your pardon, John. Of course, I knew he would. The SDUs and the scuba gear should still be where we came ashore. If you can get to the Pan Pacific Hotel, there's clothes in my closet. Two hundred dollars in the Bible, room twenty-six. Well, it's been a long time since I've said thank you to anybody. Thank you. Well, Stanley, uh, this is when we go our separate ways. But, uh, I'm sure you know the etymology of your name, Goodspeed. Yeah, Godspeed. To wish someone a prosperous journey, why? Well, if you fancy a journey, I recommend Fort Walton, Kansas. I was thinking Maui. Forget Maui. Um, I do like that this film ignores the fact that three people escaped from Alcatraz. Yeah. Although I think they say Mason escaped in the same year, so potentially he was one of the three in regard to this, but and that there was a whole Clint Eastwood film based on those three people escaping from Alcatraz. Yeah, there was... Also, you've just reminded me, actually, when they, when you had all the hostages that were taken. Um, and do you remember how they got taken? Basically, they they all stepped inside the cells, didn't they? 
when yeah. they, they're tall. I don't know about you, but if I was on a tour of Alcatraz and they were like, why don't you want to step in? Why don't you try stepping inside this cell that there's no way for you to get out of? Right. Just go in. I'd be like, nah, it's all right. I'll just watch from right here. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about this scenario appeals to me at all. And there was very, very, there was nothing at all of a, like the, going back to the hostages, was there? After they got locked in, there was maybe one one cutaway. There's, there's like, a couple I, of little bits. There's like the woman having to go at um, Ranger Bob because he doesn't carry a gun. Yeah. Which but is like, even I've got a gun. If I'd known this shit was going to go down, I'd have brought my gun. But that was about two minutes after they got locked away. And yeah. Then and I, then I don't think you see him again until Connery's walking past him when he's going yeah. to meet Ed Harris. When him and Ed Harris have that great scene together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because you got good speed when he radios in, he's like, all the hostages are alive. It's like, we haven't actually checked on them at any point. Well, and there was a pretty big explosion. <laughs> I think it was on the, the other side of the island, allegedly, but uh, it's, it's a fairly I mean, old structure. Yeah. And, oh, another shot as well that was just iconic was, of course, the explosion shot. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Which apparently Jim Caviezel was one of those pilots. See? Yeah. Um, I. He's credited on IMDb as one of the rear pilots, oh. which I'm kind of like, yeah, that's cool. And then I remember, you know, the issues with Jim Caviezel these days. And I'm like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> There's issues with everyone. But yeah, I know. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I just did one on Lethal Weapon. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we agreed up front. It's like, yeah, we're not addressing any Mel Gibson stuff outside of the film. Awkward. <laughs> you could never talk about a movie again, could you? No, it literally can't. And it's really important to separate. I mean, look, Sean Connery had his issues, as yes. we know. As we've seen those clips where he's talking about hitting around women and whatever. You yeah. know, like, but you've got to you've got to separate the man from the art. And ironically, um, that's also the case for um, Nicolas Cage when he's had such, you know, like he's plummeted down in terms of the kind of films he's been producing over the last 10 years or so. Although I gather his latest one's quite a, an interesting film to watch. Yeah, well, I, I think with Nick Cage, he had some bills to pay. I think he made some bad investments. and A few T-Rex skulls here and there. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. For those who don't know, it is a T-Rex skull. <laughs> but as much, and, you know, we mentioned this before with Mission Impossible, as much as it is in, you know, you kind of see these characters, like Nick Cage is larger than life. Sean Connery is James Bond. Uh, Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise. He's just, you know, maverick, but doing different things. But I think it's important to just turn that part of your brain off. And it's rare as a film studies teacher, I say, turn your brain off watching a film. But with regards to who they are in real life, just park that. And then focus on their their acting and their characters. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people would enjoy the films a lot more. And this is a great film. This is a great film to just enjoy those performances of those characters. Yeah, one hundred percent. Quick thing, as you mentioned, you're a teacher though. One thing I would like to ask: if you'd taken a school trip there and then they came back to you and said that guy over there says we should go, yeah, would you go? <laughs> Uh, or would you be like stop trying to get out of this trip you little shits get going (laughs) so i guess it all depends on who they're pointing at but considering it's a guy that looks extraordinarily like ed harris and looking pretty serious i'd probably go oh i've seen this film let's uh let's get out of here i want to see the cut of them telling the teacher the teacher looking at ed harris ed harris looking at them and then being like you know uh yeah see that's another thing how you know he's never going to fire the missiles because he literally they were safer on the island (laughs) 
Because yeah. if he was going to fire the VX gas off. Yeah. In, in many ways, he's sending yeah. him back to a more it's... horrible death. So that's another indication that he was never going to fire the missiles. That's right, unless he was absolutely a psychopath. He, he knew they'd be in more danger on the island than... Yeah. Have you seen... You ever watched any of the bonus features on the Criterion Edition? No. With Ed Harris trying to make the phone call and how frustrated he gets when he can't get it right. No. Like how invested he is. And it's just him like slamming the phone and like, fuck, 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 fuck. Really? <laughs> it's like Ed Harris gave this film his all. Yes. I mean, rightly so as well, because, yeah. like I say, it would have been easy to make him a cartoon villain. Yeah, I think it's look, easy to sort of, you know. I don't personally know any generals in the U.S. Army. No, because he's based on a real general or a real army guy who um, I think there was a 60 Minutes and he'd written a book about how the army shit on people that did things that the government didn't want owning up to. I can believe that because I remember watching it last night and thinking that although it's a Michael Bay action film, I thought that his character was really well defined. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that permeates because, like you said, that he's got the respect of the people in the White House, the other generals and the chief of staff and all that other. The 21 year old chief of staff and all that. But um, the uh, he, he really you said he gave it his all. And it, it, it from the second you see him on the screen to the last bit, although I must admit when they said get him, when when Connery's character said, like, get him and pull him back. I thought they were going to try and resuscitate him or try and get him back, but no, they just pulled him back, went, where is it? And then yeah. died in front of him. Just, That's he, it. Just, he just said, what have I done? And instead of going, don't worry, we'll put this right, they just went, yeah, what have you done, you idiot? Well, I suppose Connor had already told him he thought he was a fucking idiot. <laughs> well, that's true. That is true. So I, I guess he got that off his chest already. Yeah. I haven't changed my mind. <laughs> It's a bit like the whole thing that they do in Avengers Endgame where Tony says his goodbyes at the beginning of the film. You just don't realise it until the end yeah. when he's recording the message for Pepper when he's lost in space. All right, then. One last sort of big question to wrap it up then. Yeah. Um, not to put a huge label on it, but is this the best action movie ever made? No. Top ten? Um... Top 10 from the 90s. <laughs> Possibly. Um, it is It is a damn good film. It is a I, damn good I, film. Yeah, I'd put it as a near-perfect action movie. Like I say, you can pull apart any film if you overthink it. I watched Inception the other day, and there's so much in that. I adore that film, but there's so much in it you can pull apart if you try. <laughs> I think without, without falling into the trap of old plot holes and this and that and whatever, um, it is a really enjoyable film. And to anyone who hasn't watched it, I would say go and watch it um, for anyone who watched it back in the mid nineties, I'd say watch it again because I think you still get an awful lot of enjoyment from it. And it is really ironically refreshing from considering the film is as old as it is now to watch a film that paces itself as this one does. Yeah. However, there's a film like say Terminator two that I could probably go back and rewatch um I wouldn't say regularly, but once every four, three or four years, I think I could rewatch that film. See, I look, again, I love Terminator. I always think of Terminator 2, Predator, things like that as more sci-fi. Yeah. That seems to be my cheat for getting them out of the action movie thing. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Because when we were always getting people to suggest eight is action movies and people like Terminator, I was like, eh, I'm going to throw that in the sci-fi thing. 
Well, that's the thing. If if I was allowed to qualify um, Predator as an action film, then I would say that um, it was better than this one. But that's not to take anything away from this one. No, I, mean, this, I, I think for me, an action movie is slightly heightened real world scenarios. Yeah. So like your lethal weapons, your even your commandos, that sort of thing. Um, your Rambos. This this film, to, to, that's a good question you've asked, but it is, I think it has a lot of stiff competition, particularly from the era. So things like True Lies and so forth have um, stand up really well. Yeah, I think. And uh, again, you mentioned before about if ever the this film was on TV, you could just watch it and start watching it from whatever point. And that was proven true of True Lies, I think, about a week or two ago when that was on TV. Um, There are other films that just don't. So I think Chain Reaction was on TV about a couple of months ago. And I started trying to watch that because I remember renting that another blockbuster rent from when it came out and I just could not get my head around I just could not get invested in it um but uh it's definitely it's definitely I would say I think it's worthy of its place in the Criterion collection yeah and it's good that it's there um but I I don't know if I'd go as far to say it's the best action film ever made no it's one of those ones that you usually see it with the like you know greatest action movie things slapped all over it so I, I thought it was a worthy question to ask. And like I say, I would put it in, I'd probably put it in my top five. I find with action movies, a lot depends on mood as well. Because Speed's another one that's great. And yeah. another one that you can watch at any point. <laughs> I watched it on Disney Plus and then I turned it off and it was on telly. And I was like, I'll just watch the last half hour again. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I was like, fuck it, it's late. I can't be asked to find anything else to watch. I'll just watch Dennis Hopper get his head smashed in again. <laughs> What's this thing with in the 90s action films with characters getting their head smashed in? I don't know. It seemed to be the easy kill, didn't it? Yeah. It was, just, it was that's why we've got all those mind your head signs now. Maybe it Thanks was the, the Mortal, 90s action movies. Maybe it was the Mortal Kombat effect where everyone had to have a fatality that was really gory, especially with a head. Surprisingly not as gory as you remember them being, though, a lot of them. Yeah. It's like the Dennis Hoff one's almost kind of funny. <laughs> oh, dude, we've been so desensitised. I know this is the problem. <laughs> this is the thing. It's like I look back at stuff that traumatized me and can be like, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's but fine. I've seen worse on the news. <laughs> yeah, and and actually, that sadly, that is probably the case. Yeah. It, but awesome. Well, cheers to doing this, man. I really enjoyed it. As as ever, I am very honoured to have been asked. Well, back onto your podcast. It's been really. It was so nice to to be invited not just to come back to talk about it but just to have a friend like yourself say go go watch this film again and see what you think and um it was a really good pick really enjoyed it yeah i mean you sort of couldn't do 80s and 90s action movies and not it's uh uh but yeah no and i mean we have to get back on again like say alien 3 or any other film from 96 (laughs) (laughs) there's there's still independence day kicking around out there yeah uh and actually, um, maybe one day we will find out who assassinated JFK. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll one day we'll find out whether they got that VX gash out of the uh, San Francisco Bay. No, that's just for the next school trip. <laughs> <laughs> Look what we found. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. That stuff can survive in your pocket for ages. Yeah, it's, uh, it's getting not thrown through walls and. It's not unlike the the embryos in the can of uh, foam from Jurassic Park. It's just there, tucked away for 
another sequel, another day. Well, I mean, they're going to have to pay that off this year. Yeah. As they're actually bringing that character back as well. Um, Hodgson yeah. or whatever his name was, but played by a different actor. But he's played by Campbell Scott, so I'm down with that. Yeah, they'll pick it up and everyone's going, oh my God, there's the embryos. And they'll go, no, we said it only had coolant in it for 48 hours. Look, they're just goo now. <laughs> but we still got shaving foam. Yeah, sort but of. that still works. <laughs> Barbasol. Brilliant. You've got to take the small wins. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Cheers again for doing this. Thank you. Um, see you next time. Yes, take care. Speed. Where's Mason? Where's his body? I want to see that son of a bitch. Vaporized, sir. Excuse me, gentlemen. What? Vaporized? A body can vaporize? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, sir. St. Michael's Church. From Pew, right leg. From Pew, right leg. That was The Rock, and why not? I'd like to thank Ross for joining me on the episode to talk about the film. If you enjoyed this episode and be bothered to do so, please give the episode a share and tell your friends about it. And why not give the series a follow or subscribe over on Acast or wherever you listen to the episodes. Or don't, it's up to you. If you've missed the Summer of Action special episodes, or any And Why Not episodes so far, you can find them over on our podcast channel over on Acast, or on our website at hauntednerds.com, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search And Why Not. And if you like looking at lists, we have an And Why Not list over on Letterboxd as well, where you can see all the films we've discussed so far. Join us back here next week when I'll be joined by Tom Stewart to discuss Last Action Hero. But until then, this has been a Nerds and Haunted Themselves production, and I've been Stuart Moraine. Thanks for listening, and remember, this isn't a training exercise. Walmart! Why am I not surprised, you piece of shit? You know that journey,